2: Are central bankers fighting the wrong fight? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is a face that will be familiar to many of you, Ed Harrison, senior editor at Bloomberg and one of the original hosts of the Daily Briefing. Hi, Ed.
1: Hey, Maggie. Good, Good to talk to you.
2: Yeah, welcome back. It's it's so good to have you, and certainly this is our first time doing it, so I'm super excited. And we're going to talk a little bit about those early RV days. It is our three year anniversary, everyone. Drum roll. Uh, but we have a, a lot of developments and a lot of news we got to get to first. So let's do that because, um, you know, just in the last half hour, sort of widespread confirmation of what everyone's been trading off of all day, uh, a group of large U.S. banks: Goldman, Morgan, Wells Fargo, City, J.P. Morgan, um, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, uh, just to name a few, there's, there's even more than that, have come in with a backstop for First Republic combined. They're going contrib- to uh, contribute, deposit 30 billion uh, into the bank as a backstop. Ed, it's really interesting to see this coming from the banking sector itself. Very different situation with what we saw with SVB. Well, what do you make of this?
1: yeah i mean uh it's it's hard to say uh i think that it's it's done a good job in, in stanching the uh the bleed uh because you know my basic view is 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 that we're not in a systemic crisis as yet uh, it could develop into a- you know if you think about uh Silicon Valley Bank as sort of a um you know a Bear Stearns type of uh bank it could develop into something mm-hmm. uh so this is a, this is a, a a trial to get us away from that. Because up until this point, the US economy has been relatively rate insensitive. You know, We've gone through uh, almost five uh, percentage points of hikes from the Fed. And so many people who have mortgages are locked in at uh, really low rates. So many corporations are locked in at really low rates. They don't need more borrowing. So I think that there's a lot of rate insensitivity relative to other cycles. Uh, And that was starting to unravel with uh, what we saw here. And I think there is going to be a a sea change now in terms of regional banks, small banks. But, uh, you know, you're not going to see the level of distress you would otherwise, uh, because now we're starting to see uh, things uh, come together through bailouts, of course.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that you you know you bring up a good point. And we were talking about this all week. There's a psychological component to this, right? And so now you see the big fellas moving in with speed to try to calm the situation, right? To try to sort of you know prevent that deposit run, basically that that everyone had been had been worried about. But 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 it, do you have a sense that we're at the end here, or has it just sort of injected some calm into the situation?
1: It's injected some calm into the situation because when you think about it, I think it's interesting you were talking about the the, the deposit runs. It's actually those guys who are benefit benefiting it. from the depositing yeah. run. So the fact that they're the ones who are doing the bailout suggests that what they're saying is, we. you know, this is a crisis of confidence. First and foremost, we need to, you know, get that sorted out. Us, the people who are getting the, the benefit, uh, assisting this bank, mm-hmm. which is the next in, in uh, online, will hopefully get rid of the crisis of confidence. Then we can get down to the sticky wicket of, you know, wh- where where the body's buried in terms of uh, credit problems. Because I, you know, my personal view is it's commercial real estate. That's a slow bleed that's going to happen, but that's not an acute problem right now.
2: Yeah, and that's really important. And I want to dig into that a little bit. You know, so it's interesting, and and you can imagine. we're we're probably going to find out later on some of the very interesting conversations. And I think this is the long shadow of the great financial crisis. You saw the private sector come in, not the government, because the the, the sort of backlash against bailouts was evident right from the start with the SVB um, and the conversation around that. And you see them using uninsured deposits because there's still a lot of a lack of clarity around exactly who is insured these days. Some people think the Fed's announcement means everyone is. Other people say no, that's not clear. So clearly, they're trying to front run some of the sort of public perception of this as well, so that they're not the you know getting hauled in front of Congress again. I'd imagine. What do, when we look at the banking sector, the regional banking sector though now. Okay, so if we don't, if we calm the, the the psychology around it, we don't have people panicked and moving their deposits and trying to put them in the J.P. Morgans of the world. What happens? How are the banks behaving around credit availability now? What kind of impact do you think this is going to have on the wider economy?
1: Yeah, so I think that uh, the, it's going to have a negative impact. The question is how negative. Uh, the first thing to note is that you know, just like wholesale funding was a big problem with the likes of Northern. Rock, and that's why they went to the wall. And also the the whole model of investment banks—they got a lot of uh, wholesale funding, and that was a problem in 2008. Today, we see with SVB having uh, you know uninsured deposits. Uh, you know that's a version of wholesale uh, funding is negative. Oh, so, uh, First Republic—that's the exact same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the banks that have the the most wholesale funding—that is. Uh, unsecured deposits; those are the ones that were on on the brink because you know you could have people withdraw fifty, dollars hundred million dollars at a shot, and then suddenly you have to come up with the funds to deal with that. The, um, these other regional and small banks don't have that problem as much because they have a much uh, you know larger deposit base spread across uh, their retail b- banking network. Their problem, however, is you know what's on their balance sheet. Uh, And, and, you know, this is obviously where CRE comes into play. Uh, So what they're going to do is say, uh, first and foremost, we already saw what happened with SVB, And also, we know that, uh, you know, what's coming down the pike, now's the time to husband capital to make sure that our credit decisions are very uh, robust. And so I think that we're, you know, we've crossed the Rubicon. Into what I would consider a credit crunch of sorts, mm-hmm. uh, they're, gonna, they're going to they're uh, going to make sure that they're not uh, uh, no one can point the fingers at them for uh, having loose credit standards because they really want to make sure that they have the capital necessary.
2: So that'll that'll help them, but what does that do to the wider economy? We 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 know from the financial crisis, credit is the lifeblood, right?
1: R- right. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that is the question. So I talked about the rate. The, the, the rate insensitivity you know so many people are locked in to great rates so to a certain degree you could say there is some credit insensitivity but so at the margin this is di- the, uh, uh, it's it's a deflationary disinflationary trend. The question is is how disinflationary We really don't know. I think right before we we got on, Maggie you and I we were talking about no one knows anything <laughs> you have know, throw out the old models. Uh, you know, the pandemic basically screwed everything up. I mean, the yeah. reason that we're talking here now is because three years ago we started this program because of the pandemic. If it weren't for the pandemic, you and I wouldn't be talking to each other. That's so right. everything's totally different.
2: It, it is, and we've heard that consistently through really interestingly through from really experienced people too. We're not, you know, these are not people who are new to the. These are people who've who've been through crisis. They've been through crashes. They've traded it. They've thrived in it in many cases. So it's not that there's not opportunity, but it's just really hard to kind of tease out, especially when it comes to the time lags. And I think you 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 brought up a really important point, and I think a lot of our viewers know it, but just in case, this is is sort of unique to the U.S. That you can lock in at these lowest, certainly with housing. I don't know if it's the case with with commercial loans as well, but that you can lock in loans at this very low interest rate. Mortgages here are locked in for thirty years, many times. I mean, that that's a pretty big cushion if you're able to get that rate. So the the lag of of this, the time effect of the Fed interest rate hikes, is hard to figure out in every area, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that uh, when you think back to two thousand and eight, that's one of the big uh, diff- differences. Is that you remember all, all these people who had uh these arms? You know, uh, they they were paying like interest only uh arms and stuff in order to get into uh these these houses and to keep the the payments as low as possible. You know, when the when rates reset up, all of these people were suddenly having to pay more. That's the norm in most other uh, economies. That you know, you have a a adjustable rate period. Uh, you have a fixed rate period, which is let's say two years, five years, seven years. But then after that, it's uh, it's going to be a variable rate, um, and that gives you more interest rate sensitivity in those economies. Uh, the United States uh, we're unique in the fact that we don't have that, so it's very difficult to understand. Uh, you know where the credit impulse is going to be. How far does the, the the Fed have to go to induce the level of um, financial tightening that they need will it, will it just go from one second no no distress to like total financial distress? I mean that's what SVB kind of points to is, is that you go from no sensitivity to suddenly everything's falling apart.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that 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 was what surprised people. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision. To get access to all of this content, go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together
2: uh G Blackburn asking a question if all banks mark to market are tier 1 risk based capital ratios safe
1: Yeah I mean so mark to market is a big thing if you remember from 2007 8 you know there were the tier 3 assets people were talking about in bank balance sheets that is is very hard to quantify assets so they put it in tier 3 so they wouldn't have to mark the, they couldn't mark them to market or they didn't want to mark them to market but if they did they they'd have to mark down those books so the question between solvency and um and liquidity to a certain degree revolves around those assets what sbb was basically telling you is 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 that we they know for a fact that, and and it's true that if they were to hold these assets to maturity they wouldn't have to mark them down it's only if they had liquidity problems that they would have to mark them down and that's what set off the whole daisy chain and so this is where the fed in terms of their you know, taking these assets uh, for loans at par comes into play in order to get rid of that risk. Uh, but when we're talking about assets, we're not talking about just uh, risk-free government bonds. We're talking about other assets on their balance sheet. Um, and those are the assets, I think, that uh, they're not being marked to market. It's not a marked to market question. It's, it's really a, a credit write-downs question. You know, when those loans come due, because, for instance, in commercial real estate, we're already seeing companies uh, saying, we're going to hand you back the keys. Uh, that is, is that we already know that the the occupancy rate for these properties is so low that it just doesn't make sense for us financially to uh, pay the debt. So we're just going to default. This has already happened in Brookfield. It happened with the, um, the landlord of Pemco. Uh, Blackstone did this recently with some Finnish real estate. You know, everywhere it's starting to percolate where these companies are just defaulting.
2: Yeah, and I think that that, so this is where you see the biggest vulnerability. And is it systemic, this commercial? Because anecdotally, I think we all know you drive around anywhere or walk through any major city, and all you see is for rent, for lease, for rent. I mean, anybody who is in any of these, even small office buildings, they're, they're just ghost towns. I mean, there's no one in them. Uh, it seems like the scale of this could be
1: huge. I mean, that's what I think. And, uh, and you have two problems there. I mean, uh, the one problem is uh, that it also decimates uh, hotel real estate as well, because you have uh, people— uh, not wanting to stay in those hotels for business purposes uh, with those corporations, but then there's the the very real inability to convert at least you can convert a hotel uh, which is a residential like accommodation into some other form of uh, accommodation for uh, residential purposes, whether that be rental, condo, whatever it might be. But how are you going to convert an office building into uh, you know, another type of, uh, of, of use facility. That's very difficult. And with the amount of stuff that you have, it's very difficult. My, I, I um, I had a colleague at Bloomberg who was like, you know, I, he said I could run through, uh, you know, um, what, what's the name of the Hudson Yards stark naked in the middle of the day <laughs> and no one would see me. <laughs> that, he was basically <laughs> saying that this is like a white elephant, and that's a brand new. Side.
2: It's it's been <laughs> like that since they since they opened, from what I can tell. I mean, I don't get there often, but I have friends that reside, as you can imagine, in the uh, in the the CNN part of it, and it's it's always it's been weirdly empty. I think for for the entire time. So I, th- I think this is really important because w- this is the sort of where we go next, right? Which is what we like to focus on. How widespread. Are are we talking about REITs? Are we talking about who has these assets, these commercial real estate v- liabilities on their balance sheet? At I mean, how, how can you get your head around how big this might be?
1: Yeah, I think that's the, that's the big question. My understanding, and uh, I have a colleague um, who uh, says that uh, if you look at the Fed's accounts, five trillion of these assets are on bank books. Uh, but then you know, where are the other assets? Which banks have them? and which ones are, uh, you, are, are compromised. So I think that this is a very large asset class, so it's systemic in nature. And uh, the question is, from a financial stability perspective, who, who actually owns these assets? Uh, who is the lender for those assets? And when are they gonna be written down? Uh, and, and by how much? Because I don't think it's a systemic problem uh, from an acute perspective. You know it's not like from one day to the next, suddenly everyone's going to go bust uh but over time, as these rents uh these leases uh renew, you're going to have uh you know more and more problems with uh how m- the, the the cash flows that these assets are going to be spending on and so you know a year, two, three years down the line that's going to be a problem and the most important thing, however, is is that in a recession, that problem is acute. Because mm-hmm. in a recession, that's when uh, you'll see, you know, a very uh, you know companies cutting the cutting the chain. They'll be like, "That's it, you know, we're gonna we're, we're gonna cut this lease and take the hard knocks." Uh, we see that in tech already. Yeah. If that you know fans out to the rest of the economy, uh, then 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 we're gonna be in trouble.
2: And layer on top of that, the fact that you have this fundamental change now in the way we work because of the pandemic. This is the unknown, right? If we were talking about a typical business cycle, then you have a real estate downturn, it's worse because you're in a recession, but now it's kind of everywhere and it's a major shift in the way we operate.
1: Right, yeah, and so, I mean, this is part of like, how we don't know, uh, you know, these occupancy rates, uh, you know, there's occupancy uh, rates, uh, there's also, uh, over time, the, the the percentage of people who are going to work will creep up to the level of the sp- of the space that is available um, that's being used. But right now, a, a whole lot of it's not being used, and even less of it is being occupied because people aren't going to work. So, where do those things meet in the middle? Do they meet at you know twenty five percent unused unoccupied? Is mm-hmm. that a sustainable level given the debt loads of these particular? um uh, these particular buildings might have that's the question, but then also within the real estate uh s- segments we're talking about generic office real estate you know there are things like uh urban warehouses there are things like uh data centers uh things like um you know uh life sciences that are that have good positive demographics that are also parts of commercial real estate that we'll be able to weather this kind of storm. But when we think about commercial real estate more holistically, we're thinking generic uh, office space.
2: So you've been writing a lot about the savings and loan crisis, because this is what, and we've been talking about that as well. And one of the things that struck me is you pointed out that the knock-on effects, and and one of the examples you were talking about is Penn Square, didn't show up at Continental Illinois for two years, right? Do you do you think we're going to see that kind of dragged out situation? Or as you mentioned before with SVB, just information moves a lot faster now. Like is the timeline yeah. sped up? We're going to we're gonna get our hands around this and sort of be able to move on beyond it more quickly? Or could we be looking at a situation where everybody exhales and boom, we have another situation that flares up?
1: Well, yeah, I think that uh, it's a combination of those things because when you think about it, Really, I mean, you can even go into crypto and think about some of the things that we've dealt with with Silver, uh, Silvergate. I think that's a perfect example. That was basically a delay of three or four months from uh, SBI, right? So, yeah. right there, you know, there, you know, someone's throwing a firecracker, uh, you know, a bomb into, you know, and it's exploding, and we don't know that this person, you know, has internal injuries. That that's essentially what's happening with things like SVB. Well, we're the Walking Dead.
2: You're telling us uh, there's a lot of Walking right. Dead out there. That's our exactly. Care. That's so our care.
1: It, it, the SVB's problems only crystallize later because of the liquidity crisis. Um, but you know there are tons of other banks out there walking around with this this kind of stuff on their on their balance sheet. The, the Fed has made that problem largely go away because they said we're gonna we're gonna lend at par, but. You know, there's other stuff in the balance sheet, the stuff that we're talking about. Will it be two years uh, before it happens? You know, uh, it all depends, because if you think about the SNLs uh, in particular, think about how things happen. So it was the go-go years, 74 to 82. Uh, you know, right at the end of that, the Fed hiked rates aggressively so that, you know, you had uh, two uh, two recessions back to back that, you know, torpedoed. Uh, demand. And as a result of that, oil prices tanked, EM debt, you know, there was the, the Latin American debt crisis uh, perked up that also was contributor to continental Illinois. So then we get through recession. And so the recession's over in 1982. We're on we're the upswing there. And and still these things are happening. And in, in the 1980s, CRE was one of the asset classes that the SNLs were investing into to save themselves from the fact that interest rates had gone up and they were losing deposits. Uh, you know, so we're at a different point in time right now relative to where we were there. Because you know, these, uh, let's call the regional banks, S&Ls, You know, from for this analogy, they're losing deposits now before uh, the recession happens. So what happens uh, you know, once the recession happens, especially because CRE is not going to be able to help them the way that it did in the nineteen eighties. So you see that there's so many cross currents uh relative to what we saw there, it's hard to say how quickly any of this will, will occur. We can only talk to what are the the vulnerabilities.
2: Yeah. That and, and, you know, that's, that's what we have to focus on. I think you brought up such a great point. What we're dealing right, right now, with right now is liquidity. And, and Janet Yellen talked about this. She was talking about the stress test and it being liquidity problem versus a capital problem. But what you're talking about is assets on balance sheets that are going to have to really be looked at. That's a different wave of this that we really haven't reckoned with yet. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Um, we, we mentioned it's the three year anniversary. Um, this show was certainly born at a time of crisis and uncertainty. Let's have a little, a little peek back at that.
1: Happy Monday. Ed Harrison here from Real Visions US Bureau. Uh, like much of the rest of the world, the staff at Real Visions is in lockdown due to the coronavirus. So we decided to talk to you through a brand new format. Real Vision's daily briefing. It's going to cover what's going on in the upside down world of global pandemics and financial turmoil. And to start off each show, we're going to provide you with a synopsis of what's happened in the day's markets and the latest news on the coronavirus front. And afterwards, We'll do a brief but deep dive into a theme that Real Vision has been covering, one that's relevant in the context of today's markets. It could be liquidity, the macro outlook, market structure, passive versus active or Bitcoin, all sorts of things. But we hope you'll enjoy our daily briefing and we look forward to hearing your feedback. So here goes for today.
2: That, that was in the very early days of the pandemic. Ed, I feel like I've aged a thousand years. How have we gone through a pandemic and like every other crisis and you look like you haven't aged for one single <laughs> three years?
1: You know, What's that's your so secret? You say that? <laughs> I, I was, uh, I, just before I came on, I was shaving all the, the gray hair away. I was like, <laughs> yeah, like if, if they show that clip, <laughs> I, I have to make sure that people aren't going to be like, "Oh my God, that guy looks like oh he's." Oh my like God, 10 what what has Bloomberg done
2: to him? Well, you, you managed exactly. beautifully, but but we really are. I mean, um, you know, this was. Um, Real Vision was founded back in 08 with the mission of democratizing finance. You guys launched the the daily briefing in order to try to arm people with information. And now it feels like it's a polycrisis is a word I'm hearing, hearing a lot, right? We've got war, inflation, this banking situation. We're getting a lot of different questions from viewers, which I want to get to in a moment. But when you look out at that sort of bigger picture macroeconomic landscape, you know, what do you focus on? How do you feel about this debate about inflation?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, inflation's a killer for purchasing power. So, ordinary people, inflation's bad. For businesses, the ability to be able to predict uh, where demand's going to come from and how it's going to go, it's also negative. The levels where it becomes negative, probably four, five, six percent. You know the levels where we are now. If that is a permanent uh, state of of mind, that that's not a good place to be. I think the Fed is uh, they're, They won't tell you this, but they'll probably accept three percent, and maybe three percent's manageable. And in fact, I mean, we lived with that in the 1980s and 1990s with no problem. Two and a half, three percent on on many occasions. So I think that that they're willing to to put up with that. But the levels that we have now, inflation. It's just bad for people. It's bad for businesses, uh, and, and it leads to instability.
2: Mm. And and it's so hard to figure out to see into the future and get a handle on and inflation in particular. I think because of all these forces. Um, Rao sat down with Imad Mastak for a follow up conversation. Uh, he is at the center of AI. Uh, the first conversation Ralph called one of the most important, and that's what we love to have, you know, talk about the macro, but have these people who are also involved in this cutting edge to try to figure out how it all sort of, you know, um, h- hooks together, really. Let's play a clip from that, and then we'll talk on the other side.
1: If anything, when we talk last, we we're at the iPhone original. You remember, I didn't have copy and paste. We just got copy and paste. Where's the app store? The app store is coming, right? Uh, and it's coming now because everyone wants to build the apps, and it's easy to build the apps. Four of the top ten apps on the App Store in December were based on Stable Diffusion, and that was the entire back end—a two gigabyte file. We got Neural Engine access on the first of December,
0: the first AI ever, because these files again are entire backends that you can just build on in
1: seconds, minutes. You can even get it to write the code for you. Um, So again, like I don't know where we're in five years, honestly. I just know that. You know, again, this feels like the start of the pandemic where there's going to be productivity booms and on the other side. And I just see it as massively deflationary. I can't see how it's not.
2: The interview is mind blowing. It needs more than one viewing. You can see the entire conversation on our website. Just hit the QR code for a free trial so you can see what we're talking about. Um, Ed, it's really interesting. Imad is very clear that he thinks AI is massively deflationary and he dropped some amazing statistics to back that up that the speed with which this is developing, I mean, everybody who, who's played with chat, GPT knows, should the central banks be focused, so focused on inflation given what's happening in technology, do do they even have their head wrapped around that to try to figure that into the inflation forecast?
1: You know, uh, it's a good question because you, uh, you're looking at two different timescales. One is is the inflationary timescale, which is like this very small period of time, and the other is, are these tectonic shifts that are uh, disinflationary and deflationary over time. You know, and we were already living in that world before. Um, and the pandemic sort of shifted us out of that world, but for a very short period of time. I think. I think at some point in time, the much more uh, disinflationary forces that bring down prices, that increase price discovery, they're going to come back to the fore. And then, of course, you have the demographics and all of that kind of stuff coming together to to, to force prices down. But you know, once you the daisy chain of uh, you know supply chains. Uh, inflation expectations and all of that come into play. It's sort of like a whack-a-mole for businesses and 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 people to figure out, you know, how do they change their spending habits and their production habits in order to deal with their price pressures, uh, their pain points, and, and to make sure that they have enough money and profit to to navigate the environment. And so that that causes this whole sort of chain of events and eventually that's going to burn itself out. But I think we're still going to be in that for a little bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That time, that timeline is going to be very interesting because so many people really think we're in a structurally higher inflation environment. And I encourage you, we may be, but if you think that is the case, you should listen to that interview and then see whether your mind has changed at all. It's going to be, um, I think we're all going to be going back to the draw- drawing board, finding new models to look at this stuff. So, so Ed, we have a lot of questions about Europe, about Credit Suisse. A question which banks in Europe are most at risk? Another question will the Swiss uh, National Bank sell big tech to fund a bank bailout? Uh, So, what's your feeling about vulnerabilities in Europe?
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, Credit Suisse is kind of like JP Morgan or Bank of America, i.e., too big to fail. So, on some level, what you could say, especially after Lehman Brothers, is it, there's almost no risk that they will fail. You know, you know, they will solve the problem one way or another. It's not. It's not going to fail. It will never happen. Lehman Brothers told us that uh, they tried it. And Lehman, by the way, wasn't like a systemic institution at that time. It wasn't considered the largest institution. You know, if you think about investment banks, you had Goldman Sachs, you had Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. They were all bigger than Lehman. Uh, and so they thought, okay, we can let this. This is a pretty big bank, but it's not too big, we'll let it fail. And look what happened. Mm-hmm. So w- when you look at a company like uh Credit Suites, I would also mention Deutsche Bank because they're always mentioned as another weak uh company that's very large. They're they're not gonna fail. And so on some level it's a non sequitur. It's really just about how do they figure out how to you know to manage the risk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. the uh someone asked you, do you think they'll get nationalized?
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's it's so it's complicated in it's so, Europe that question. Yeah, the, the, I, it's funny you would say that because I was looking at ABN Amro. I don't know if you remember ABN Amro, Fortis, and yeah. and all of that. You know, and I, the way that I remember it, you know, ABN Amro still has a, um, they still have a bank network. They have a retail branch network. Fortis, you know, basically was uh, nationalized, and then they they split things up and so forth. So the thing is is yeah they could nationalize it but only in the most extreme circumstances and i don't i don't even know if rbs a royal bank of scotland if that still is uh if the government still owns that in, in the uk this is, we're talking 15 years later now
2: yeah yeah yeah, those are tricky. Those are tricky questions in Europe, which is why I think people um, and can they move with the speed needed? But you're right about them being too big to fail. That's why they're still alive, right? They've had trouble for the last 10 years and and they limp along. But good questions about what might have to happen. Um, what surviving looks like is a very different question than whether you survive. So that's something right. we're going to have to watch for. Um, Ed, we're out of time, but it has been so much fun to be with you and to have you back on again.
1: Yeah, it was great, Maggie. Uh, bring me back on again. I'd love to do it.
2: We, we certainly will. Anything, anything that you want to leave us with as we sort of, you know, try to navigate through these turbulent times? It sounds like you're really going to be focused on commercial real estate.
1: Yeah, and I would say that when we look at what happened with SBB, a bank that probably had like fifty billion in deposits two or three years ago, uh, actually in uh, 2018, they did have fifty billion. Here's a bank that had $200 billion in deposits, not like a, a super huge bank. And look what's happened uh, to the environment. So this tells you uh, how federal the environment is, like where we are. So many more things are to come. That's all I can say.
2: Yeah. And, and, and information is power when it comes to that. Ed, thank you so much. And a big thanks to all of the community who's been with us for three years. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with an extended Friday extravaganza. It's an hour long. Raul and Andreas are both gonna be here live answering questions, giving uh, us an update and our thoughts on where we stand right now and what we need to look out for. And you'll all get a chance to meet David Madden, who's really concentrating on some of these tech trends. So we're going to put it all together for you. So be sure to join us, uh, share your questions, and um, hopefully we'll all be smarter for it. So we hope to see you all then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there.
0: If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like, so the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right, and that's by your future. Some of this is going to really f*** your future in 20 or 30 years' time. But we've got time to figure that out, because it's unstoppable.
1: What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.